You hear these statements a lot. Every day something tragic happens. A child dies. Cancer takes another life. An earthquake kills thousands. It forces people to ask the question, if God is loving and merciful, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Well, that's a good question. And thankfully, the Bible sheds a lot of light on this subject. Check this out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the declaration of the very first verse in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The next couple of chapters explain in broad terms what God made over the course of the six literal days he used to complete his creation. Light, the sky, plants, animals, and humans. That's right, God created everything, and according to Genesis 131, he saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. That is, it was complete and perfect. There was no death and no suffering. There was no survival of the fittest. Animals didn't attack and eat each other. Adam and Eve, the first two humans, did not kill animals for food. Genesis 1.29-30 makes it clear that man and animals ate only fruits and vegetables. So the original creation was wonderful, peaceful, without death, full of life and joy, and all enjoying the presence of God, the Creator. So, what in the world happened? How do we get from there to here? Well, something drastic must have happened that altered the original creation, and that something was sin. Remember, God created a perfect world and placed Adam and Eve in paradise. As their creator, he had authority over them, and in his authority, God gave them a rule. In Genesis 2.17, God said, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, Adam and Eve heard the rule loud and clear, but they willfully disobeyed it. They ate from the tree God told them not to. They chose to live by their rules and separate themselves from God. So the Creator kept his promise that punishment would follow their disobedience. With the rebellious act of one man, sin entered God's creation and death along with it. But the effects of sin didn't stop there, because God had given dominion over all of creation to man in a very real sense. The sin of man affected all of creation. In Genesis 3, we see the beginning of a cursed creation. Thorns and thistles were now part of the world, as well as pain and suffering and death. The world was no longer perfect. It was sin-cursed. And that's why tragic things still happen today. And before we give Adam and Eve the full rap, we have to realize that all of us still willfully sin against God. That should make us really pause and think. But for now, at least on this topic, enough said. In 2016, a comedy show called The Good Place came out on network TV. The series is centered on an afterlife to which humans are sent either to the good place or the bad place after their death. All humans are assigned a numerical score based on the morality of their conduct in life, and only those with the very highest scores are sent to the good place, where they enjoy eternal happiness with their wish, every wish granted, guided by an artificial intelligence named Janet. All other experiences, all others, uh, are for eternity of torture in what is called the bad place. Now, compared with the Bible, the show is filled with inaccuracies concerning the afterlife. So if you were to go and you were to look at this show, I've seen several episodes myself, just kind of check it out, just kind of see what's the world's idea of what heaven is and all these different things. Well, you'll see there's a lot of inaccuracies. You'll see that what they're describing there is really kind of a Western culture uh, way of thinking of heaven. But when you really get down to it and you begin to dissect what God's word says about this place called heaven, you're going to see that it is a better place than the good place. Because the best place or the better place is based on biblical truth. So over the next several weeks, what I want to do is talk to you about the afterlife. What happens when we leave this world? 
And so over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at the description of heaven, the people of heaven, the beings of heaven, the opportunities in heaven, and then, of course, the alternative to heaven. And so we'll be looking at these over the next uh, several weeks as it relates to this new series. So basically, here's where I want to go today. If the better place is still to come, what about now? What is all this about? The suffering, the sorrow, the imperfection. When we see suffering, I think we all tend to begin to doubt God. I think when we see the news and we see the the horrendous things that are done either by nature or by people who are evil and wicked, we begin to look at that and they say, is there really a God? How many of you have been there before? I mean, you really begin to, it kind of shakes you when you see the evil that's all around us. When things visit us personally. When we get that bad health report, when, when, when hardship seems to come our way financially, when all these things come crashing down, the question that always seems to pop up is, why God? Why God? And so this morning, I want to ask you, what is your question? How would you complete the sentence or the question, why God? Why God? And then you fill it in. What you're dealing with today. What, what someone, else you lo- someone else that you love is dealing with today? When you look out there in the world and you see all this, what is your why God? So today what I want us to look at is this journey to the better place. How do we get there from here? And we're, we're going to look at several passages this morning. Matter of fact, I'm going to keep you busy in God's Word this morning. And so what I need you to do is be able to, to, to reference Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. You need to have those ready because we're going to jump right in on this. Now, I want, I want to let you know that this is probably the biggest Bible study going on in Cleveland County this morning. Because this is really what this is about to be. This is a Bible study. And I'm going to show you why... God, why are there so many things, the hardships, the suffering, the evil, and all these things, why is that in place? Why are we living in this right now? So, if you will, look at the introduction. And oh, by the way, for the first uh, Sunday of the year, there's no blanks to be filled in. All right? That would bless your heart. But anyway, but there's places there to, to fill in some notes. So here we go. Look at the introduction. According to Scripture... A world of sin, evil, and wickedness leads to despair, suffering, hopelessness, and eventually death. You see, we don't actually have to look into the Bible to see that. We see this all around us. We see where all this tends to lead. Now, the question then becomes, what is the answer to this condition? What is the answer? We know what's there, but how do we fix it? What's the answer? Well, philosophy would say we've got to think better. Religion would say we got to do better. Sociology would say we need to get along better. Dictators and politicians would say, follow me to better. And that seems to be the, the things that are resounding out there. We notice the suffering. We notice the hardship. We know all these different things, but who has the answers? Who are we looking to for the answers? All, by the way, are attempting, all of these are attempting to create Utopia. Utopia is the ideal, perfect state or place. This whole idea of a utopia. 
And then there's people out there, and, and you hear them, I, I know I do, who, who basically say, you know, things are bad, but they're getting better. They're getting better. Lately, my wife is caught up in these uh, documentaries talking about how hard it was to live in the 1800s, 1700s. Anyway, I think it's just weird stuff that she's watching, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to focus on something else. And she's looking at it, but occasionally I'll look up and I'll say, man, I'm glad I live now, not then. How many of you have ever seen something like that and thought, man, we got it easy compared to where these people are coming from? But, but really, I want you to think about it. There's a lot of us that would say, you know something, things are getting better. And, and in some ways, things are getting better. But as things are getting better, things are also getting worse. How many, how many of you have noticed that? As we get better, there seems to be another trend or another thing that's saying we're getting worse. And that's the way this world is really charged with. So, so all this, while things may be getting better, things are getting worse. It, it constantly shifts. There were those who, who had been throughout the world, who had been leaders of the world, who says, follow me and I'll lead you to a place of utopia, the perfect and ideal state of being as human beings. But here's what you'll find. Those who have led us there or attempted to lead us there have committed some of the worst evil known to man. Do you realize that Stalin wanted to lead people to utopia? Look at what it cost. Do you realize Mussolini and Hitler were attempting to create utopia? Do you realize that? They even, that came from the words of Hitler himself. To create this ideal state of being. And look at all the atrocities that took place in his journey to attempt to do that. But let me say this. All were attempting to create the ideal, perfect state or place. Let me just tell you this. Based on what we know about this world, based on what we've seen in this world, based on the authority of God's word, it's impossible to bring about utopia in this world. It's impossible. It'll never happen in the condition that it's in right now. And the question then becomes why. And so if you will, look on your outline. Why? First of all, we fail from perfection. We fail from perfection. Do you realize where perfection started in the creation? It started in God's garden. Do you remember God's garden? All of a sudden, you've got God uh, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We've got that whole idea. God creates the world in six days. He, he steps back. He looks at it. He says, it's good. Then he takes man, and he puts man in his creation. Not long after that, he finds a helpmeet for, for man and brings her on the scene. And all of a sudden, we seem to have <clears throat> this ideal state of perfection, but what we see in Scripture is it doesn't seem to last long. How many of you have noticed that in Scripture? It doesn't last long. Sin enters God's creation, a creation of perfection, at Adam and Eve's failure and rebellion. What followed? Hardship, suffering, and even death. That is what followed. So in Genesis chapter 3, I want you to look with me at verse 9. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam. Notice he didn't call to Eve. He's calling to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, let me ask you a question. Does God know where he's at? Of course he knows where you're at. Well, what's the point of the question? Well, the, the point of the question seems to imply accountability. 
But it also implies that basically Adam is lost. God is reaching into his lostness. And so all of a sudden, something has changed in the garden. So verse 10, so he said, basically Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid. Really, that word could be translated as shame because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Basically, he's saying, how did you come to this conclusion? And then God says this. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Now, of course, God already knows, right? He's basically looking for, for Adam's response, Adam's confession. But what happens? He, he asks the question, listen to Adam's confession. Look at verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Well, what's Adam doing? Is that a confession? No, he's blaming the woman. But in reality, you know who he's really blaming? God himself. The woman you gave me. So God, you're the blame for what's going on right here at this moment. You're the blame. Then it's interesting. Verse 13, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault. So in verse 14, God begins to lay out the new economy, basically, for our existence. Verse 14, he says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground. Okay, so we know the serpent's been cursed, basically. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, enmity uh, means ongoing hostility, between you. Now, he's not talking about the serpent at this point. He's talking about Satan. Between you and the woman. Now, now, that means there's going to be a hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. Because the woman, we're going to learn, is the one who's going to bring forth life. And, and, and those that she brings forth, there's going to be ongoing hostility between them. But it goes a step further. Then it gets more specific. And he says, and between your seed and her seed. So when he sees your seed, he's talking to Satan. He's basically talking about those who will do your bidding. Those who will do your bidding. Those who will operate from the realm of Satan's domain. Now, do you remember Jesus saying something about that when he was on the earth? He, he basically looked at the Pharisees one time. He says, you know your father, Satan. You remember him saying that? He, that's the language that's being used here. Those who would follow Satan himself. Those that he would use to bring the hostility. And then, he, of course, it says, and her seed, which some of your translations will have in capital S, which is talking about the Redeemer, because we know that because of what he's about to get ready to say. He's talking about and, and the virgin-born one. He shall bruise the one coming of the woman. He shall bruise your head. He's talking about a death blow there. And you shall bruise his heel. Talking about a wound. What are we talking about? We're talking about the first idea of redemption in Scripture. Man fell, redemption's coming. How's it going to come by way of? The seed from the woman. It's going to come from the woman. Doesn't say it came from Adam, does it? No, it's going to come 
from the womb. We talked about that back around Christmas, about what the virgin birth was all about. And so all of a sudden, there's going to come this point where there's going to be a death blow to you, Satan, but you will wound, you'll do your damage. But then he says in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. He's talking about the childbearing times in which a woman is carrying a child leading into the delivery. He's talking about this whole idea that in that, he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. Now, how many of you, lady, how many of you can identify with this? It is through pain. Now, again, you go back to where my wife's been looking, 17, 1800s, you didn't have the drugs that you're capable of having now. But I'm convinced you shouldn't take the drugs. Just go with the pain. That's the way God said it. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Actually, I don't know how God feels about that. But I'm just saying, if I were in your situation, I'd take the drugs. But anyway. And then he says this. He's talking to the woman. Your, your desire shall be for your husband. Basically, the translation there is really trying to bring about the idea, you'll be contrary to your husband. He's talking about strife in marriage. And then he says, and he shall rule over you. At that moment, he's talking about marital authority. There comes this point where the conditions have changed. Everything has changed when it comes to where they were to where they're moving towards. They're moving from perfection, and they're moving towards imperfection. So we're already seeing that Satan is going to bring hostility. We see that the woman's going to bring forth children in, in, in pain or suffering, and we're going to see that there's going to be marital strife. Then, verse 7, he says, To Adam, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. All the days. From this point on to when you die, you're going to have a struggle meeting the basic needs of your life. The basic needs of your life. Now, have you ever envisioned what it was like before the fall? You know, it's almost like, you know, I, I get this impression that Adam and Eve out there She's dropping grapes in his mouth. You know, I, I mean, I've thought of all these different scenarios, you know, and all that. But it's getting ready to be different, right? Everything's changing. Everything's changing. We go on into verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of the ground which you were taking... For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. He's talking about legit the, the idea of physical death. Physical death is going to be a part of your future from here on out. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made them tunics of, of skin and clothed them. So we see God, this whole scenario that's going to play out to the end of the chapter is really God providing for them even in their sin. He's providing for them this, this idea of shedding of blood. Uh, you, you have the, the clothing that God's provided. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Most commentators, and I believe this too, he's talking to the Trinity here. He's basically saying something's changed for man. 
And then he goes on and he says, And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, there were two trees in the garden. There was the one of knowledge of good and evil, and then there was the tree of life. The tree of life ensured that they would live forever. Now, I don't know about you. Do you want to live forever in the context of this world? Do you really want to? You know, when we're in our 20s and 30s, we think sky's the limit. We think, oh, man, free and clear. As we get older, the reality of this world begins to set in. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And then we get closer and we get closer and we get closer. It's like, well, the, I'm about tired of this. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so all these things. And so basically God is looking at the situation and he's basically saying that tree of life is going to be a problem for them. Because of everything that's been set in motion. Cursed is the ground. Childbearing. Everything. Everything. All the most basic things of their life is going to get much, much tougher. So verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden till the ground, to till the ground for which he was taken. And so he drove the man out and he placed a cherubim, that's an angel, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Basically, God's mercy is basically being reached out to the point that man will not have to exist like this forever. Forever. I think most of the time we look at it as God being cruel. But no, it's an act of mercy that we wouldn't have to live in this state forever. So we fail. Think about what we fail. We fail from perfection. We, we left God's garden from the fall. Here's what we need to learn based on Scripture. Conflict with the enemy. The fall is going to produce conflict with the enemy, who is, by the way, the author of evil and weak, wickedness and destruction. We're going to have physical and emotional suffering. We're going to have a relational strife, and there's going to be hardship. How many of you have experienced almost every bit of that in the last month? In the last 24 hours. We've been there, right? And then comes the flood. The flood comes after this. Now, what's amazing about the flood is we get so caught up in Noah and the sons and their wives and how they go and they're the righteous people and all this. But you know what's really behind the story of the flood? What, what I see is a big picture here. What I see from the flood is the fact that, that basically God allow things to take place, and then God is almost putting limitations on the evil that he's going to allow to exist around us. And how do you know that? Because of two things that we see in the scriptures. First of all, demons, we don't like to talk about them guys, right? Demons had access to everything. There were some demons that acted outside of the character. They, they seemed to be the real bad ones. There's always a bad bunch. You, you know what I'm saying? Even when it comes to demons. And they began to do things that were truly wicked and evil. And we can read about that in scripture. And God basically bans them at this point. He basically says, you're going to be put, you're going to be held. We read some of this in Jude. We read about this and we know that they're bound. But second of all, you know what's going to happen with the flood? Lifespans are going to plunge. We're going to go from living 900 years to maybe 120 years. They began to shrink back. Why? 
Because it seems, based on God, the assumptions God has given us, that the longer we live, the more capable of evil that we can create with our minds and through our hearts. So when you look at the flood, what are we really seeing? I think what we're seeing is not only judgments being passed throughout the earth, but we're seeing God put limitations on evil. Then we come to the Tower of Babel, and we learn about how God dispersed the people. They were, they were there creating this city. What was behind the idea of the city? Many people believe it's man's first attempt to create a utopian society without God. That's what many people believe when it comes to what they were up to. So it's like, yeah, we don't need God. We, we can do this on our own. We can create a utopian society and, and do all these things. And what, what did God do? God came in and broke it all up, didn't he? And so we see all these things that are back there that come into play to where we are today. And it leads to this. Look on your outline. We were born into a world of imperfection. And with it comes suffering. So all these different things that come into play, when you begin to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what you're seeing is, is how evil is going to come out of nowhere and run, run rapid. So much so that God places limitations on that. So much so that people believe they could create a society without even knowing God. This utopian idea that somehow if we can make it just right, get to the ideal state, we can erase all these things that were supposed to be against us. But here's the problem. We were born in it. How many of you agree with that? We came in yelling. We're probably going to leave yelling. I hate to say that. I mean, you look at it. But, but here, I want you to look at it on the screen. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans 8. But I want to do it from uh, the message. You've got to be careful with the message because it is a paraphrase of God's word. There is some interpretation that lends itself there. But, but I like the way it's put, and I think we can learn something fresh here. So in, Mark, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, look here on the screen. Here's what they believe Paul is saying. <clears throat> That's why I don't think there's any comparison. Now, what is he getting ready to do? He's going to compare, look on here, between the present hard times and the coming good times. So he's going to make this comparison. Now, he's basically saying, here's, here's the conclusion he's going to come to. I'll go ahead and give you the conclusion. What awaits us is far greater than how bad it's been. How many of you can agree with that based on what you know about Scripture? As bad as it's been, there's something that will be coming that's far greater. We're calling it the better place, right? So then he goes on and he talks about it. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. It's being limited. It's incomplete. It's basically the idea of being wrecked. Creation has been wrecked. God reigns in it until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be re released. Now, when he talks about release, you got to go down a little further and say, okay, where's he drawing from? He's drawing from the imagery of pregnancy. He's, we're going to learn that in just a moment. The idea of being released is being born into something else. Okay? So, so when there's a release, he's talking about a, a birthing, basically. Okay? So, are ready to be released, born into better. 
at the same moment into the glorious times of heaven, he, uh, 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 ahead. He's talking about his return and all the renovations that's coming to the world. You know that awaits the end, don't you? Okay. So he says everything's lined up. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. We become more longing for that world that is to come. There is a longing that comes. Because all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. Now, ladies, was it easy carrying those children? Wasn't easy, was it? I mean, it, I, I, some women seem to have it easier than others, but some of you, bless your heart, you were sick the whole nine months. Some of you, it didn't touch you. We hate, I, I'm sure other women hate you for that. But, um, but, but it really is tough. I mean, you, you can't sleep. You can't. Acid reflux, I mean, heartburn. I mean, there's all kinds of potential for everything that once worked for not working anymore, right? You say, why is a man up there talking about our issue? I'm just telling you what I observed, okay? And all these different things. And it basically is saying that the creation is in, in that moment of suffering, inconvenience, all these different things that are playing out. And he says, but there's a joyful anticipation that deepens. At the end of the pregnancy comes the joy, right? Comes the joy. Comes the child. And he's talking about this. He's putting it in this context. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it's not, but it's not only around us. It's within us. He's talking about what's going on. We feel deeply. How many of you feel deeply when it comes to the sufferings of this world? It, it, it touches us deeply. And it says, the Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours, these broken bodies, are yearning for full deliverance. The answer is not better, but full deliverance. Full deliverance. That is why waiting does not dis diminish us any more than waiting diminishes, diminishes a pregnant mother. I, I, I've, you know, many of, we've had a lot of babies in this church. And, and there's a lot of the women that are, you know, well, how much longer you got? Two more months. Two more months. Good night. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, <laughs> but, but, but it's one of those things where, you know, they get, I can't wait to get rid of it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It becomes where it's unbearable almost. And it's almost like we're sitting here and the waiting is there, the waiting. And then it says we are enlarged in the waiting. The word enlarged means we're encouraged and have hope in the waiting of what this is going to produce. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. We haven't come to the full realization of it, okay? But the longer we wait, the larger we become, <laughs> that's true, and the more joyful our expect expectancy until that time. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside of us, helping us along. All of a sudden, there's the joy, the Spirit of God that helps us through the pain and the suffering, attempts to bring understanding, encourages us. It's all right there. God's even provided in the midst of all this. And it says this, if we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in us and for us. 
making prayer out of our world, wordless sighs and our aching groans. How many of you have ever been to that point where the sorrow of this world has touched you so deeply that it just, the pain you can't even put into words is causing you? That's what he's talking about here. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. That's why we can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked out into something good. That means this. When all this is said and done, once there's that full release, once the pregnancy has delivered, it will all be worth it. How many of you are feeling that right now? You know, we look to that idea of it will be worth it through hope, through a lens of hope, don't we? But here's what makes it easier. The hope that we have is not based on wishful thinking, but the future anticipation of what God says he's going to do. And we've learned to trust it. So we were born into a world of imperfection, suffering, and we will leave this world probably in much of the same way. Sounds depressing. But again, what is the picture? The, the picture is birth pains into delivery, born into something else. Now, let's go on. We know Adam and Eve sinned, but how did that reach us? Here it is. We were born in imperfection. We were born in sin. Did you know that? I've told you this many times that you don't have to teach that two-year-old to have a, a, a rage of anger. You don't teach them to be selfish. You don't teach that three-year-old to lie right there in your face. It's just there. And it just so easily comes out. Isn't it amazing how easy it comes out? And, and, and believe it or not, we can pick on a two- and three-year-old, but for some of us, it's still a challenge, isn't it? How easy all these things can come out. But we're born in it. Turn over to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. You talking about the, the plague of all time? Was when sin started in the garden. And it's touched every one of us all the way to this point. Apart from Jesus himself. Look at this first part of verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Verse, first part of verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting into condemnation. First part of verse 19. For as by, the man's disobedience, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Adam. He's talking about Adam. I mean, that's heavy stuff. Now look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The language of Romans chapter 1. Here, when you read this, here's what you've got to keep in the back of your mind. It's a language of utter helplessness. That's what we're about to read. Utter helplessness. While at the same time, it's considered, it's disgust. It's utter helplessness that results into disgust. It's the disgust. So look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. No, No one goes out there and say, there's no God. The Bible says they're a fool if they do, right? But it goes on, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Anyone who has seen this world is without excuse when it comes to knowing there's a creator, there's a God. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile. That means useless, pointless in their thoughts. It speaks of their imaginations or rationalizations. And their foolish, foolish means unintelligent hearts. They were foolish and unintelligent at the core of who they were. They were darkened. It led to a point of being darkened. They were unrestrained. They were unhappy, greatly deceived. And then to top it off, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to become wise. That, that means they thought they knew the deeper things or the deeper truths. But they became fools. In the midst of all that, they were unintelligent in the smallest things, in the smallest truths. You see, we were born into that. The only thing that keeps us from going there to that point, to the depths of despair, the depths of hopelessness and disgust, is a work of God in our lives. It's the only thing. So then, here it is. It leads us to this. We can be saved from imperfection. We can be saved from sin and suffering. Turn back to, to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, that's speaking of Adam, Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So basically, we we came into this world through Adam, born of a sinful nature, but our hope is found in whom? Jesus. Jesus. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in uh, condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Speaking of Jesus. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's how it comes to rest on us. Aren't you glad we can be saved from imperfection, from sin? from suffering, from all the different things that plague us in this day, there is better to come, better to come. The world we've, listen, and here's what we got to understand. This is why we're easily deceived. Even as Christians, we got to be careful with this. The more we fall in love with this world, the more we lose sight of what God has for us. Have you ever seen Christians moan and groan and have pity parties and invite you to their pity parties and sit around and they get in a, well, you think that's bad, listen to my bad. You, you, you ever been caught up in that? I mean, is that because we've lost, lost the perspective of what awaits? Paul said this. Paul, we've already read this. He said, Man, when you get to comparing how bad this is compared to what awaits us, 
what awaits us is far greater than anything that we're going through right now. He even got to the point where he said, you know something? I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, if, I, if they die, if they kill me, I get to go on and to the better place. If I stay here, it's going to help you out. You say, that's pretty arrogant of him. No, that was the truth. He was saying the truth. He had the right perspective. So we say we can be saved. And then, lastly, we can one day live in perfection, heaven. The Bible says in John chapter 14, Let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. My intention is to go. We're gonna, I'm, I'm going to come back. Uh, if you take the whole context of Scripture, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you with, with me to, to this better place I'm preparing for you. Okay? But then we get a conditional phrase here. And if I go and prepare a place for you. Now, he's already told us he's going to go do all this. So if in the conditional phrase is what? You. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? If I come back for you because you're meeting the criteria, if I come back for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm coming back. And when I come back, or when you come to meet me, I'm going to take you, or you're going to leave this world for a better place. And that's what we're going to be talking about over these next several weeks. You see, the promise of the one, that being Jesus, through the promise of the one, we will be delivered from imperfection to perfection. So look at your outline. We fail from perfection as a people. We were born into a world of perfection. Every one of us know that's true. We, we were born in imperfection, right? We kind of made that known. We can be saved from imperfection, sin, and suffering. And we can one day live in perfection. Here's the conclusion. The only way to escape the sin, suffering, and hopelessness of this world is to follow Jesus to another. A place of perfection and paradise. The place God calls heaven. Heaven. It awaits us. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I just kind of basically want us to Think about something this morning. I know I've run over time, but in John chapter 14, a little bit later, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man goes to heaven. And Jesus says, except through me. I am the criteria to be able to go to the better place, to be able to go to heaven, to be able to go to that place that's being prepared for you. And, and he's basically saying, the reason that I'm the criteria, I want you to think about this, is because I represent perfection. And God will only receive perfection. Jesus is basically saying, when he said, I'm the way, I'm the way because I live perfection. None of you were capable of living perfection. You were born in imperfection. You were born into imperfection. Everything that's touched your life up to the, from the day you were born to where you are right now is considered imperfection until 
Jesus crosses your path. And that's where you'll find perfection. That's the reason Jesus said, I'm the way. And as a result of that, what, what do we do at that point? At that point, we got to realize that, that we must face this crossroad and say, I either agree with what God's Word says. I agree with Jesus that basically I'm a sinner. I can do nothing about my situation in and of myself. But yet this one who is perfect can bring me to a place of perfection. His name's Jesus. Think about that. The one who knew no sin, capable of bringing me to a place of perfection. Not because you're perfected in yourself. It's because he's perfected. And he brings that to you. So this morning, if you're sitting here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and you're sitting here and you've never really considered what Jesus is offering. He's offering you perfection that one day you'll be able to live in perfection. One day you'll be able to live with him and God and, and, and the things we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. But the, the point is this right now. Here's where you need to understand. Or here's what you need to understand. Are you a sinner? The Bible says, yes, you're a sinner. How? If God requires perfection, how then? What is my hope? Jesus. By admitting that you're a sinner, by turning to Jesus, believing who he says he is, turning from your sin and turning to him by faith and saying, Lord, I want everything you have for me from this day forward. I give my life. I surrender my life to you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking around. Please, no one looking around. If you say, you know, I want what Jesus is offering. If you've never made that decision to follow him, to trust in what he's offering, You've never made that decision, but you want to today. Would you raise your hand right now? Would you raise your hand? Father, we just come to you, and we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he represents. Father, we live in a fallen world, and every day we're reminded of it. Every day. We deal with the misunderstandings of this world, the unfairness of this world, the injustice of this world, the evil of this world, our own suffering, the suffering we see in others. Lord, we know that it's enough to cause us not to have hope, to have those questions, why God? To doubt you. The Father helps to realize this is not the end. This is not the end. Jesus has made a better way. Jesus is here to restore perfection, to bring perfection to us. If we'll come with admission of guilt of our sinful nature, that we are sinners and that he is our only hope. Father, help us as we make this journey through this life to find you in the way that you desire us to be found, that being found in Christ. Help us to know that that is our only hope. That is our ticket to the better place. Father, thank you for Jesus and all that he's provided on our behalf. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning. I also want to thank you. I want to close with this real quick. Go ahead and pull the lights up. 
Um, I want to thank you for your giving in last year. Um, you can cut that music. I'm tired of hearing it, to be honest with you. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, I was just, anyway. Wish I had my own button up here. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. Y'all do a great job back there. No offense. I want to thank you for your giving last year. I don't know if you've looked at those numbers down there. It is amazing what God has done. Since we talked about our uh, vision for the future back in the first Sunday of December, since then, I'm going to tell you, the giving has been so good. We've been able to make all those things. We, we've been able to bring them back four months just because of the giving that was done in December. I mean, it is amazing that what God has done this past year. I, I want to thank you for being so faithful to that. Our giving, as opposed to last year, and also our surplus was 22% above last year and our surplus. That's amazing to see what God is doing here. We're on pace to do a whole lot of stuff, and I'm just so excited about what God is up to. And it's not just about what we did with the budget. Our missions giving went through the roof this year. I mean, it is amazing what God has done with you and your obedience and your giving. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed. <clears throat>